Hello, and welcome to our weekly podcast of Who's Here in the Hamptons. I'm Dan Retiner, your host, broadcasting from my home in the Hamptons, where I have lived for over 55 years. I've written a dozen books about this glorious place, and I've seen it grow through the years from small tourist towns, quaint fishing villages, and a summer playground for eyes society, to what it is today, a world-class resort for celebrities, artists, musicians, authors, and billionaires. In my podcast, I will bring you interviews with not only these people, but also prominent local people who have helped shape the Hamptons. I'd like to welcome to the podcast Ken Oletta, who is uh, one of America's great writers. He's had five bestsellers. He's been elevated to the status of literary lion by the New York Public Library, which is a great distinction. He's probably best known for writing the Annals of Communication for the New Yorker since 1992. Boy, have things changed since 1992. <laughs> uh, I thought to uh, start by asking you about um, a movie you were in called Where's My Roy Cohn? And I, uh, you, you've been in a couple of movies with roles. What was your role in this movie? Well, it's, it's a documentary <laughs> as opposed <laughs> to a, a movie I'm getting paid for. I had done a profile, a cover story for Esquire magazine in 1978 of Roy Cohn. And I saved everything. So I saved all my tape recorded interviews with him. And when... Um, oh, I, wait, excuse me. I should explain to people that Roy Cohn was sort of like Rudolph Giuliani only uh, two generations ago. No, I would say he's more like jo Joseph McCarthy, who we worked with. Right. Okay. So I had all my tape. So I gave it to the guy who was creating the documentary, and he used it throughout to tell a story about Roy Cohn. And Where Is My Roy Cohn is the title of it, but it's really a, a phrase from Donald Trump when he was president. He complained that the Justice Department was not protecting him. So he said, where is my Roy Cohn, meaning someone who would protect me. And in the profile I wrote in 78, I interviewed Trump and he talked about why he loved and hired Roy Cohn. And it was because Roy Cohn would lie, steal or cheat to, to win the case. <laughs> yes. What is the, what you would describe as the most interesting change that you've analyzed, that you've annaled in your annals of communication in The New Yorker? Well, clearly the, the biggest change since 92 when I began is the internet and digital world and how that has disrupted uh, the old analog world of traditional media. Uh, you look at newspapers, local newspapers with exceptions like Dan's paper are dying. Big newspapers in big cities are dead, many of them. Traditional media, if you look at broadcasting, when I wrote a book in 91 about how the broadcast networks, ABC, CBS, NBC, were being disrupted by the cable companies. That was a new technology. And that if you went back to the 80s, nine out of 10 people watching television at night were watching it on one of three networks. And today, maybe two out of 10 people are watching that on, on networks. And you look at the birth of Netflix and how that's disrupting traditional viewing on television uh, and how it's disrupting advertising. If you don't have advertising, people get accustomed to not being interrupted by ads. So the world has changed dramatically because of the digital world and, and the invention of the internet. Now I read somewhere that you're writing a book about Harvey Weinstein. Is that coming out or has it come out? Or Tell me about that. 
I'm doing a, a biography of Harvey Weinstein, um, his whole life, not just the, starting in 2017 when he was exposed as a predator, and not just in 2020 when I covered the trial where he was convicted of, of rape and, and sentenced to 23 years in prison. I'm doing his life from being born in Queens to, to prison today. And, and talking about the great movies he made, as well as the, the terrible predations he visited upon women. So it, it's, it's a comprehensive book. I'll finish sometime this spring. Uh, it'll be published sometime next year. I look forward to that. I think a lot of people would like to know more about him. I know, I remember him, it was almost like a magician with movies that he was making. He was making a movie called Speck in the Sea about uh, two East Hampton fishermen, one of whom fell overboard during the night and uh, how the rescue found him clinging to a, a, uh, a buoy, which he'd been doing for 12 hours. And, uh, and when he, and it was gonna, I think it was gonna be a great movie, but that collapsed when he got in trouble, when he got arrested and, and all the things happened to him. And that, that never never came out. He made a lot of great movies, distributed a lot of great movies. Uh, he's a man of of talent, but also a man of of uh, real vices. And and we saw it with his conviction in a criminal trial in New York. What I was trying to draw out of you on the question about the New Yorker, uh, what stands out as something either bizarre or interesting or unusual? And during this tremendous amount of time that you've written that that uh, that column, well, one of the, uh, the the more interesting profiles I did, for me at least, was probably sometime in the mid '90s. I wrote a profile of a of a man by the name of McClandish Phillips. McClandish Phillips was a former New York Times reporter who even Gates Elise, who's a great writer, said was the best. McClanish Phillips was the best single writer on the New York Times. He, tall, lanky man. And McClanish Phillips had, had an incident in his life, which I reported at some length, where he found out the head of the American Nazi party was a Jew. And he hidden his fact that he was, he was Jewish. And McClanish Phillips confronted him at a diner in Queens. And he said, you're Jewish, aren't you? And the man across from him, the American Nazi party leader, picked, held a knife next to his fork. And McClanish Phillip, who was about six foot six, very lanky, thought the guy was going to stab him. And instead, what the guy said to him was, Mr. Phillips, if you report that, I will commit suicide. And McClanish Phillips went back to the newsroom of the New York Times and told the editor, Abe Rosenthal, the managing editor, Arthur Gober, with the Metropolitan Editor met Martha Goldberg that what had happened, and they said, this is a great story. And he also said, he said that if we run this story in the New York Times, he will kill himself. And the editors said, this is just a great story run. It ran on the front page of the New York Times. And sure enough, the head of the American Nazi party killed himself. But Clannish Phillips was so shaken by this, knowing that the right thing as a journalist, he was reporting the truth, he was exposing someone who was, who was hiding uh, his, the fact that he was Jewish and defending the killing of, of Jews throughout Europe. And, and he just felt so guilt-ridden 
that he quit the New York Times. And when I located him, he was parading outside of Columbia University with a big come to Jesus sign. He's an evangelical. He was a wonderful, warm, generous man who really believed Christ and the coming of Christ would save the planet. And so I, I but he also felt that he came to feel that journalism was such a brutal business that he was somehow responsible for the murder or the killing, the suicide of the head of the American Nazi party. That's that was one of the more interesting explorations I've done. Wow, that is something. Let me ask you about Sag Harbor. You're a family man and you've been living, how long have you been living out here? We started coming out here in the mid seventies. We bought a house in 78 in Bridgehampton. We've been here ever since. What do you, what do, you uh, do for exercise? I already know the answer. <laughs> well, I work out with a trainer on Zoom here. Uh, I can't go to the gym anymore out here. And uh, play tennis, softball, and, um, and take long walks. What do you enjoy most about being out here? Why did you choose to come out here? Well, I love the light. I, I just love, I mean, I, I look out at a expanse of, there's a polo field and farms behind my house. And I could be in Montana. I'm north of the highway. And it's very pretty. And so I, I love that. I love the isolation. I love the ability to take walks. I love the food, the fish, the, the produce, particularly in the summertime. And I love my friends out here. So I'm, I'm a happy camper. You play, there's a Saturday baseball game that's played in Massachusetts and Hewitt Park. Tell us about that. How long has that been going on? Well, I think the game began sometime around 77. I started in 78, maybe a year or two after it began. I've been playing since and it's, and it's um, you know, some of the people who started playing are no longer with us. Some of their kids who played with us have now gone off on their own lives and they're no longer playing. So the world changes and our softball game has changed. Who ran that game? It originally was run by John Leo uh, of Time Magazine a great character, great birder, by the way. And then since it's been run by Debbie McEnany and her husband, Kevin. I read somewhere that when they, everyone would show up, John Leo would say, here's the starting order and that was it. Well, what happened was it was based on seniority. So the first, the, the people with the most seniority, the first 20 players, with seniority got into the game. So I remember when Mort Zuckerman came, this billionaire, he couldn't get in the game. He had to just watch it for, for a couple of years until he built up enough seniority to, to be eligible to play. So it, it's very egalitarian that way. Uh, is it played year round or do they break in the winter? Oh, no, no, it, there's no, there's no year round. It, it's, we play from Memorial Day to Labor Day. I see. How did you get into this in the first place? Talk about it where you uh, worked early on in your career and what your interests were? Well, I started out, I, I have a graduate degree in political science and public administration. And I thought I would go to work in government, not running for office or anything, but just being a, a public servant of some kind. And I, I wrote for the school newspapers, both in undergraduate and graduate school, and was editor of the literary magazine in graduate school. 
And then uh, I had the Dean of the Maxwell School at Syracuse University, uh, Scotty Campbell, knew that I didn't want to, I wanted to get out of the PhD program, I was bored. And he introduced me to a guy, a guy by the name of Howard Samuels. And Howard Samuels was wanted to run for governor. And he was the inventor, he's an upstate businessman who had invented both baggies and the plastic clothesline. In fact, his senior thesis at MIT was how to create a plastic clothesline out of size of rope. And so he became wealthy, but he wanted to run for governor. And so Scotty Campbell recommended me to him as a potential speechwriter. And so my first job was as a speechwriter, code holder, travel aide to this man running for governor. And eventually he, he ran for governor. And with my help as his campaign manager some years later, he went from a 20 point lead to a 20 point defeat. <laughs> <laughs> and, and I was involuntarily unemployed. And who, who beat him? Well, he lost to you carrying a primary. And he was a reform candidate, Howard Samuels, but he, he, it was in the post-Watergate period and he lost. I worked for Bobby Kennedy for a period of time in his presidential campaign and, and worked in the federal government for a while. And I've had a series of jobs in government and, and politics. And then I, I plunged into what I really wanted to do, which was journalism in 1974 and have not looked back. What was your first job in journalism? My first job was a freelance writer. I would write for the Village Voice, a weekly newspaper you know something about. <laughs> and and I eventually wrote a longer piece for them and then, then wrote a column called Running Scared, a political column for them. And then was <clears throat> a contributing editor for New York Magazine at the same time. And when Murdoch took over, did a hostile takeover of New York Magazine and the Village Voice both, in 1977, a group of us, including Walter Bernard, who you know, went on strike to try and prevent him from succeeding. And of course, we, we failed, so we all quit. And, went, and that's when I started writing for The New Yorker and, and writing a daily news column and, and other stuff. You wrote a book called uh, World War III. Uh, what, was that, what was that about? World War 3.0 was a, a Microsoft and its enemies. I covered the Microsoft antitrust trial. And it was a book written in, in 2000. And it was about how Microsoft was a monopoly and how they tried to deny it, but they were found guilty in a courtroom. And I wrote about the power that Microsoft had at that period of time, the, the stranglehold they had over, over other companies uh, who had to use their software to stay in business. And so that, that's what the story about. And it began with, there was a lot of Bill Gates in there and how despite what he's become today, which is a, a really a statesman and an interesting, generous man, then he was a child. And, and he could have prevented this trial, this monopoly trial and all the embarrassment it caused him, but he was too young and too childish to do that. Well, I think that would mirror uh, another trial which happened before when IBM was accused of a monopoly, which would have been at the beginning, early years in your career as a communication writer. And AT&T as well. Yep. And, and we're about to see maybe a repeat of that today with, with the government accusing, potentially accusing Google, Facebook, Amazon, maybe even Apple of monopoly behavior well the I, I think the 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 big issue today is 
everybody has a mouthpiece. And you have, when you friend somebody, you get to learn everything about him, even if you just friended the guy who pumps your gas. And you can find out all kinds of awful things about other people and go nuts. One of the trends that's happening recently has been the stripping of commentary by the public from newspaper websites where they would write a news article and then everybody would say, yeah, that guy's a bum. You know, he borrowed my lawnmower 23 years ago. And now you can't say any of that because they've done it and they say, send us a letter to the editor. <laughs> but it, it speaks to the level of um, stress, I think, that the country has been brought into. Well, look, for example, just recently, the, the woman, this young woman who was hired, she's in her 20s, to be the editor of Teen Vogue. Uh, and they found out that she wrote a, a tweet when she was 17 years old, which allegedly was anti-Asian. Or, or reflected some kind of prejudice on her part. And she basically, they fired her. And, and her life is in upheaval today for something she wrote as a teenager, one, one sentence on, on Twitter. So it, there, you, know, you make indelible footprints with everything you do. It, it's like a recording of your life at every second and it's available to anyone. And they could twist anything you say or, or report anything you say including something you say indiscriminately and, and out of youth and, and enthusiasm. So it's, 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 it's a real problem. And that relates to the other problem with the internet in digital world, which is privacy. I mean, everything you do on the internet, there's a, there's a record of. And, and that's what those cookies are doing. Now, there's some positiveness to that. I mean, I love when I go to Amazon and they say, Ken, we know you like you might like this book because you like that book. And I like that. It makes it makes shopping a little easier and allows you to browse in a different in a different way. On the other hand, the fact that they have my fingerprints over everything, they know what I've purchased, what I've watched, uh, how much time I've spent on on sites. I mean, that could be concerning. That could be a new book. No, there's there've been books about this <laughs> and, and, and and good books about this. I want to thank you for coming, Ken Oletta, literary lion, author of many books, writer of the Annals of Communication for The New Yorker since 1992. That's uh, quite an achievement. And uh, again, want to thank you for coming. My pleasure, Dan. Thank you. Thank you.